this week, we discussed the new BISO role. Is this a career path to CISO or an entryway into security? We'll debate. In the leadership and communication section, what is security? How to team up with IT for cybersecurity? Executive cybersecurity leadership program launches and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. People require access from anywhere to resources everywhere, but legacy security is ill-equipped for today's hybrid organization. AppGate STP delivers zero-trust network access for hybrid workforces and workloads, empowering trusted users with secure, frictionless connections to only what they need. Make your attack surface invisible and reduce time to provision by 91% with AppGate SDP, a leader in the 2021 Forrester ZTNA New Wave. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash AppGate. Monitoring and maintaining compliance is a never-ending struggle with a high price of failure. Firemon helps customers meet complex and varying compliance requirements. Firemon has fully customizable reporting, analytics, assessments, and dashboards to meet the compliance needs of any organization. With Firemon, compliance reports take a tenth of the time, and real-time continuous compliance eliminates the anxiety and headaches of audit preparation. Improve security outcomes by improving security operations with Firemon. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Firemon to learn more. Account takeovers, malicious campaigns, impersonation, and data breaches are on the rise, driven by the pandemic and security challenges of a remote workforce. The number one most common attack vector in breaches is compromised credentials. Constella Intelligence protects your key employees from digital risk by continuously monitoring the deep, dark, and surface web for exposed credentials, detecting threats that others miss with real-time alerts to protect you and your company from a targeted attack. Try it free at securityweekly.com forward slash Constella. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 251, recorded February 22nd, 2022. It is heart day. I'll explain that in a little bit. I am your host, Matt Alderman, here in a very frigid Colorado. It's currently zero degrees outside, but the sun is out. Figure that one out. Joining remotely are my co-hosts. First up, Mr. Ben Carr. I bet it's a little warmer down in Texas. It is, it is. I don't think it gets cold here till tomorrow. My wife was just... Uh... Uh, lamenting that uh, it's it was 85, I think, yesterday, and it's supposed to get down to uh, low 40s tomorrow. So kind of crazy. That's cold. that's cold for you guys, Tyler. How how is it up there in Idaho? It's freezing. I mean, we'll be real. At the 40 sounds like some shorts and a sweatshirt kind of weather. <laughs> yes, it was it was negative like two like an hour ago. I go, oh, it's going to be zero at showtime. Great. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. We also have a couple webcasts coming up soon. First, join us March 2nd to learn five things you can do to catch more bad guys. Then join us March 10th for an intro to KQL queries. To register for these webcasts, visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. And don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. All right. So heart day. Uh, quick, Quick little side story because it's very rare that I do shows on both Valentine's Day and heart day. Heart day. Today is the 20th anniversary of my son's open heart surgery, 222 of 02. Um, our, our oldest son, our middle child, uh, had open heart surgery when he was young. So we celebrate today as heart day. So it's kind of his special day. And we just did Valentine's Day like eight days ago. So the two days are kind of kind of linked. So just uh, kind of a fun little fact um, for the day. But we're not going to talk about heart surgeries. We're going to talk about the business information security officer role. And I brought this segment in today because this is a kind of our off week. We're not recording on Monday. And when we do that, we kind of think about topics that we should cover. And this topic came up because of a conversation I had with Mr. Ben Carr about um, 
a BISO role that you're actually hiring, Ben. And I went back and looked at a couple of the articles that we've covered. And the question is, this role, what is it? And and where does it sit kind of in the career path of a cybersecurity professional? Some think it's a mini CISO role or a deputy CISO role, and others think it's a way to bring new talent into the cybersecurity industry that don't, that they might have the business acumen, but maybe not the cybersecurity side. So there's kind of a debate about what is this role and, and, and what does it, where, where does it fit in the, in the overall career pathing uh, for, for people? So I wanted to set that premise first. Ben, you want to want to start and give us a little background on your thoughts about the BISO role? Yeah, so um, I'm happy to. I, I think um, it, it's a fairly interesting role. Um, it's not widely used, I think, in the industry. I think it, it's used in a lot of larger organizations, um, you know, uh, financial services, uh, insurance, healthcare, that kind of thing. Um, I, I really like the concept of the role, but I use it kind of specifically. And so I think the confusion comes because, you know, you think CISO, you think BISO. And so uh, I think a lot of people interpret it as kind of a, you know, weird deputy CISO role or, um, you know, the right hand of the CISO. And I I don't think that's typically the way I've seen it work and I've used it in the past. there's, There's an interesting dynamic that always happens with the business in that, you're trying to figure out how to drive your security program forward. You're trying to figure out how to get uh, uptake by the business, but the business is off doing the business things. Um, also, we we struggle with we don't often get all the funding um, that we'd like. So, you know, building the team as big as it would need to be to actually put people and embed them in the business is sometimes hard. So I've, I've used and I've seen this concept of uh, security champions or, you know, if you happen to interact with privacy, privacy champions in the organization. And those people sit in the in the org. So like you know, somebody in finance would be defined as the privacy champion. Their day job would be something related to finance. But they, they have some dotted line responsibilities back to the security org. And so you need an interface um, between that area of the business and the security structure to make sure that one, you're you're funneling the right information to that org. So if there's something you're pushing out, if there's something you're making a change about, um, some type of communication you want impact uh, to be driven, you can you can have that communication out to that line of business as well, especially in the development org. I like to have a security champion in each development organization. So if if you've got multiple products and you're you're uh, doing an engineering effort and standing up something new, you'd have a security engineer actually embedded in that project team, and they need a person to bring information back or ask questions of the security org, right? And so you want that single point of contact. And so the BSO has been this great role where you can implement them as kind of a, you know, that functional go-between inbound and outbound between security, and so it lends itself usually when I implement it, to to more kind of a managerial role, right, um, at that level, not necessarily a director, senior director, um, not not an IC. And they need to have really great communication skills, be able to interact with the business, know where the bodies are buried, know who's who. Um, and and it, it, I guess, foundationally, they don't need necessarily a ton of security experience. It's helpful if they have some. Um, and they don't need to be specifically, you know, a, a total business guy, and so it's been this great role where you can bring someone in who maybe has an interest in security, but doesn't have the chops to come in and, and run, uh, you know, an area of the program. But then they can learn about, they get exposure to all the areas of security. So they're going to interface with the tax service. They're going to integrate with security operations. They're going to integrate with compliance and privacy and GRC. And so they can potentially elevate into one of those roles at some point in the future, or potentially keep that going. Now I have seen the BSO role. Um, in larger organizations, so where there are subunits, potentially there could be a BSO for that, you know, uh, sub-organization of the business, a, a business unit or business function, um, in, in somewhat independent entity where that BSO acts as kind of a mini CISO for that org, but that's, I guess, less frequent. So that was a lot to unpack. Uh, you opened that up, so I, I took advantage of it, but uh, hopefully that gives you some color, Matt. 
Is that role it, is that role one that is actually groomed, or do you do you see that as someone that has to have that longstanding institutional knowledge? So it's not typically someone that is brought in or hired externally because that takes a long time to spin up, find the bodies, integrate, have the trust of each of the groups. That's usually someone that's brought up from the inside. Is that what you're saying? I've found most success with that um, because they they already have organizational knowledge and they already have some organizational trust. Um, you can bring somebody in externally, but then I think maybe the skill set you're looking more for is maybe a little different, right? Um, you know, we've talked in the past on the show about what real diversity means and thinking outside of the box. And I think this is also an area where theoretically you could bring in somebody who has maybe some marketing experience, right? Or some additional value proposition they could bring to the role. Um, sales engineers, uh, you know, sy systems engineers, uh, people that come from that area, they're, they're used to dealing with customers and being customer friendly and being able to, you know, whiteboard and understand concerns and push it back. So I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to, kind of expand who we're thinking about. But directly to your point, in my experience, when I've come in and I've opened this role, I've, I've looked around the org and see if there's anybody who could fit. And if they meet those criteria, then I think it, it could potentially be more successful because that's the harder stuff to get is that institutional knowledge, right? It takes a lot more time to scale that up. Right. So what I heard you say in... in Think about the BSO as someone who heads up the Security Champions Program, right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of what I heard you say, Ben, right? Is that that person is really working across the, the Security Champions in each of the different business units, right? And kind of managing that whole interaction, the ins and the outs of what the different business units need, the security requirements, et cetera. They're, they're really facilitating your Security Champions Program at the end of the day, right? Essentially, that that's a major part of part of their job. I think that there's other things you can do, um, you know, security training and awareness. Um, you know, sometimes that's in a GRC. Sometimes that's, I mean, I've seen it in ops. Um, but that's something that the the BSO can can run with. I think. Um, but I, I think facilitating that security champions and being the the entry point to security for the rest of the organization and kind of pushing initiatives and agendas. Um, back to the org, I think is is really helpful, and it gives that that kind of push pull mentality uh, with security. Okay, so then what becomes the kind of the career path if you want to be a C? Because it sounds like the BSO isn't necessarily on the the stepping stone or the precipice to the CISO role, right? It's a little lower down. It's more of a managerial role. It's managing across the business units. So in your mind, what would be the role that would kind of be your deputy CISO or that person that would be next in line? Because I think a lot of people think that that's the BISO role. And if it's not the BISO role, then what role is that to you, Ben? Yeah, and that's that's created confusion in the past because the titles are so similar. Um, there's this natural assumption that the BSO is like the next in line, or or it's the deputy, right? And so I think that's one thing I've learned that you have to be really clear about what the responsibilities of a role are. Not just if it's the BSO, but um, it's certainly helpful in that role when you're bringing somebody on. Be really clear about the way you see it because it can set missed expectations if you don't. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I'll talk first. I think you had two questions there. One was related to the BSO and one's related to like, what what is the, you know, the next role to the CISO? How do you get there? I, I think, I think, again, about the BSO role as somebody who provides an entry point into security for somebody who might not naturally, uh, you know, have all the technical chops to, to get there. So again, that sales engineer who has the customer relationships, understands how to engage with people, can can think about technical concepts, but may, may not be, you know, able to run a SOC or might not, you know, be able to run a GRC program or understand how to implement a really technical, you know, vulnerability management program. They they don't know that, but they understand the technical concepts and they can they can learn the tech quick. So they come into that BSO role and it gives them the opportunity to kind of get the exposure across the different verticals of security and then figure out, you know, look, my next role, I really like security operations. I like running, you know, uh, uh, threat and vulnerability teams that that when when that person then elevates and moves out, that may be the next role for that BSO is maybe the, at that point they can take over that team and run that because they've had exposure and they've got 
they've got more experience in the seat. Um, that person, again, maybe in marketing who comes in and can drive that communications and delivery, depending upon what you're looking for, maybe it gives them the exposure and experience after a couple ro- years in that role to, to move into something else in security. And maybe it's not a director, maybe it's working for a director in one of those in other areas. But I think it's a good pipeline role. And we're, we're always trying to figure out how do we how do we bring in people who don't have the experience and enrich and grow security? I think that there's a lot of things you can gain. Now, when you think about the next, what's the role to the CISO, I, I typically think that that comes from somebody who's run, you know, director of security operations, director of GRC, director, you know, it, it's a director role. Um, in larger orgs, you might have a deputy CISO, right? And that that deputy, your second, then that would naturally be your succession plan who you look to. I think it's really important for anybody in the CISO role to kind of identify some succession planning and think, you know, if something happens, who's the next guy who's going to step into this seat? And you should always be trying to, you know, groom your your direct reports for where they're eventually going to go and whether that's replacing you or moving into another part of the org. And and to that point, if if your director of security ops gets an, an offer to go somewhere and you you know you're trying to promote that and build that kind of suction to pull up from underneath. It may be that be so that you want to tap to maybe run that area of the org if they've showed that they have the capability and they have the drive and the desire to to do something additional moving forward. And that leads in a little bit to a conversation we've had multiple times on this show is it depends on the type of CISO you're looking for, right? Because (laughs) if if you're coming from the operational side, that means you have a little more technical skill set. You're more of a technical CISO. If you're coming from the GRC side, that's a slightly different kind of role. That's more from a risk compliance perspective. Um, And so a lot of it's going to depend on what kind of CISO and what that transition plan for your CISO looks like depends on which, which of those director level you're going to tap into, right? Yeah, I think it's the self-awareness, right? You have to understand what type of CISO you are, what the org's looking for. And then part of that is how do you groom the right people to be able to, you know, move into that role or move into that seat. And I think, you know, from a a mentor perspective, like I think that's one of the most important things is talk to people that you're you're coaching and say, look, you know, if you're moving into this role, you have to really understand what are the requirements, right? Not just the hard requirements, but what are the soft requirements? What are what is the company actually looking for in that that role or job function? And are you going to bring the right set of talent to that? Yeah, you have the technical chops, but you know, this is somebody really ops focused, um, or you know, it's somebody who's you know post breach and. Do you really have the experience to do that, right? Um, is the program a, a build program? Do you, do you have that experience? Or are you more of a steady state guy? Um, yeah, I, just functionally, I think it's it's really important to to focus on that and figure out, yeah, where the direction is and, and whether you're matched to it or whether, you know, the role for one of your, um, you know, the people you're mentoring is is matched for that. Right. And that's, that's the organization as well, right? Like where the organization is sitting and what maturity levels uh, currently are, are moving forward to because if you've solved some of the more difficult technical problems and now you're in a mature state that you're trying to solve some people problems, that's a great place where you're saying you could pr- potentially bring in someone more operationally focused or project management. You know, one of the directors of operations or project management, someone that's integrated with teams has that trust and the technical problems have been solved. So that's also a state of where the organization currently is and, and the goals of which they're moving forward to. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of, you know, the maturity of the organization, where they are. Um, are they early stage? Are they, you know, building to get to the next functional stage? Are they, you know, massive and they're just kind of steady state running with it? Um, but also, like, what's the what's the vertical that the org's in? Are they financial services where they're going to be much more concerned about, you know, a lower risk tolerance versus, you know, uh, I don't know, manufacturing where they might not have the impetus for a, a, lo- a low risk tolerance. They may want to run with a, um, you know, a, a much more the stable program, um, and not take on concerning items. Um, and, and it's also the people in the organization, just, uh, you know, every CEO is different. Every, um, ELT is different. Um, when you're dealing with the other leaders, you have to really understand that. I think again, when you're interviewing, um, or when you're looking at an org, really important, you make relationships and you, you discuss and you have as much contact as you can with the CEO and the other members of the leadership team to understand like what is the direction and what's the intent and where is it going just to, to kind of avoid surprises. Um, and somebody coming in from a VISO role, 
looking looking at that from an outside perspective or or any of the leadership teams in security should have you know as much contact they can with other leadership team members um with this with the CISO understand you know what his vision is and what he's trying to do because you know every every type of CISO has a different uh you know architectural arc when they're when they're building their program and their org right so Tyler and I wouldn't qualify as BISOs necessarily um if we were to implement a BISO role here, I think Sam and Renee potentially have a, a, a great entryway in. I'm curious, Tyler, have you ever, th- I'm curious for you, like, have you ever aspired to be a CISO? Like, are, are you are you taking a, a that path or are you taking a different path? Because, you know, I, I was telling Ben over the weekend, we were chatting about this topic. I had a decision uh, years ago before I went to Tenable to go back in the house and, and kind of go to the CISO route. And I think I missed my opportunity. I don't, I don't think that'll ever um, be an opportunity for me in the future because I went a completely different path. I'm just curious whether you've thought about it and, and kind of where do you see your career going? No, it is, it is a, a regular occurring thought. It is one that I've tried to actually curate in, in two senses. One, remaining very technical while honing the business skills. Like that's just a, a good consultant. That's someone that's, you know, doing good work. But looking through the lens of, you know, any of the orgs I'm going into, advising CISOs, looking at CEOs, talking at the boards, really speaking their language and understanding, like, is that something I would like to do? I think uh, eventually, I think we all aspire to kind of move to that role where we have a little bit more control. We can pull bigger levers. We can get more strategic. We don't have to be quite so much in the weeds and and maintain that technical aspect uh, at the level that we do every day. That being said, you know, many of us that are very, very technical and spent, you know, decades doing the technical pieces, it's really hard to give that up. We would probably be very good CISOs or executives because we can do both if we maintain those skills and, and work towards it. Uh, but giving up some of that, that is a requirement to go to the CISO role. So that's where um, I think many of us have been doing this a long time. You're at that point, that precipice where you're talking about, like, do you give up some <laughs> of those jobs and do you take that leap? And uh, I'm, that's one I've been considering for quite a while. And I think it is something I'll eventually get to because it would be very good from a strategic standpoint to give those directives and, and make some differences in, in bigger places. Uh, but the consultant still allows you to do some of that without having to uh, fully commit. So I think I'm, uh, I'm in an uncommitted relationship right now. I have a hard time committing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that's one of the hardest things, right? Is the, the challenge of figuring out how do you balance, you know, your desire to be technical and jump into things where you have core competency and, you know, it's your, your, fear of excellence, if you will, but then manage that and say, but I, I can't do that now. I, I have to step out. I'm, I, I have to think about the bigger picture of this and think more strategically. And I think the new CISO is an area where they, they really fall into kind of a, almost a trap is, you know, uh, it's not really micromanagement, but it's just they're, they're too in the weeds with their people and they're not really trusting in the people you hire. And, and that's, I think you really have to hire good people. You have to make sure that you've got a good team supporting you and then, you know, uh, lead by coaching, right? I mean, be able to get involved and know where the problems are, but at the same time, let, let people fail a little bit. Um, you know, as long as it's a soft fail and you can recover from that, I I think sometimes there's a lot of value in that. It's all, it's almost like marriage, right? Like you you get to that point where you, you have to give up a lot of control and you have to trust a lot of people and you have to allow people to make mistakes, even in areas that maybe you would do better for the whole relationship. And so that, that control issue and, and kind of giving some of that up as well as uh, trusting your people to, to make the right decisions and realize that, you know, they may not do as well as you did, but you have to let them grow. And that's where that really that mentoring and leadership of really driving people to excellence, pushing them to uh, get to that point and allowing them to do that. If you always take over and you're always uh, hands-on micromanaging, that doesn't allow anybody to grow into the potential or the aspects in which they're striving for. And that makes a good organization when you start to get that very, very deep with inside of your teams. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so, I, and, and t- oh, go ahead, Matt. No, 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 go ahead. I was just gonna say the other side of that coin is you gotta be careful, like not to just totally let them, you know, run into walls all the time either. Right. Um, you have to be able to, to assist and help out and give that coaching and, 
you know, it's really, it's sometimes it can be really hard to give the coaching in a way that's perceived, you know, in a, in a positive way. And you really have to figure out that it, I mean, it is like a relationship, right? It's any, any type of relationship you have, it, there's nuance to that and trying to figure out how you um, manage that communication path. It, it can be challenging. A lot of counseling and, and some uh, psychology helps. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a bit. Uh, so I think what I heard out of this was if you are in the industry and you have the expertise, the BSO role is not really your path to a CISO. If you're more technical, it might be director of operations. So Tyler, you know, the, the operational side to keep your technical skill set. If it were somebody like me, it'd probably be more on the GRC side of the fence uh, of the house to, to, to get to that role, but not necessarily the BSOs for us. So, I mean, I think that helps people though a little bit understand like based on where they are, how do they get to the next level? If you're outside looking in, a BSO role might be a, a, an interesting way to get exposure to security. But if you're in security already, figure out your strength and figure out which director level you come up through to become more of the trusted advisor to the CISO and then be, put yourself in a position to, to maybe get that next CISO role. Close, Ben? Yeah, I think that that's that's pretty close. I think um, you know any you know if you're looking to get to the CISO, every CISO is looking for trusted leadership, right? Like every every CISO is looking for that guy on his team that he can say, "I'm going to rely on this person," right? Foundationally, they're going to be my rock for whatever a vertical area it is. But additionally, you know, I'm going to start to utilize them more for things outside of their scope. And then you're you're kind of challenging that person and seeing, can you think more strategically? Can you think out of your specific area of responsibility? And if so, I, th I think then that provides a lot of value back. And then maybe you're thinking about succession planning. So um, I, I think that was an accurate assessment the way you put it, Matt. That's perfect. Thank you, gentlemen, for this segment. We're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Cyber risk and compliance automation is finally here. Legacy GRC systems cannot support the powerful, real-time automation and oversight that organizations require to take risks that matter to succeed. CyberSync continuous control automation ingests data from the IT GRC stack to update controls against regulatory requirements and risks in real time, delivering insights and visibility. See how members of the Fortune 500 are saving millions annually by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CyberSync. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. Oil pipelines, universities, corporations, all paying millions of dollars. Barracuda says, don't pay the ransom. Before a ransomware attack occurs, train your teams to recognize an attack and use anti-phishing technology. Protect your applications and they can't get onto your network. Simple backup and restore solutions quickly recover your data without paying the ransom. Build your ransomware protection plan now by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Let's face it, cyber attackers have the advantage. Extra Hop is on a mission to help you take it back. Regain the upper hand with security that can't be undermined, outsmarted, or compromised. When you don't have to choose between protecting your business and moving it forward, that's security uncompromised. See how it works in the full product demo, free online at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Ben Carr and Tyler Robinson. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. If you send me an email, I'm just going to point you to the form. We review those suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. All right, gentlemen, articles, but the, the conversation continued a little bit during the break uh, from that last segment, which I thought was interesting. It ties a little bit into this first article. Because when I think about the security industry, you know, I started security in '96. I've been in this a long time, and and when, you know, when I got into security, I mean, we called it information security, information protection. The word cyber wasn't used, and this article kind of steps back and says, "What is security? Why do we do this? Like, what is like the purpose of what we do?" Because I think for a lot of us in the industry. It's our passion for what we do that 
excites us, accelerates us, allows us to grow and, and, and achieve. And it, it ties a little bit into the last discussion where, you know, sometimes the technical folks don't want to give up their technical side. They love the technology. They love the technical aspects. But sometimes you have to give that up if you're going to move up into a CISO role, right? And, and so I don't know if you guys read this full article. I, I read the whole thing because I thought it was a really interesting way to think about security and how it ties into some of our basic needs and how we as professionals are really there to try to help with some of those basic needs uh, for not only for, for consumers and, and other people, but just in general in, in our industry. Yeah, it was super interesting around the, the psychology of you know safety and your, your ability to uh, tie that to respect and that whether this is a product, a, a person, a company, like when you're talking about what we actually do, we're providing those pieces that allow business to operate at the psychological level. And like you said, the, the personal needs level, that, that safety, the um, potential to be a good product, to get value from something, all of those things tie into our, our psyche. And really what we're doing is enabling the business, if we're doing this right, uh, to achieve those uh, those general needs that have to happen in order for someone to want to purchase something or utilize a, a business or a product. So yeah, I, I go ahead, Ben. I, I would just say I, I I agree. Like first thing I thought was, wow, Matt, you picked a really long article for this one. Um, <laughs> and, but I started to read it and I I, I liked it. I, I enjoyed the concept of it and where it it hit home for me was, you know again, I get back to diversity, like we need to think about how we, how we approach security and why we're doing it and, and what the best way to get the intended result is. And, and I think a lot of times we don't focus on the human side of it. We don't address, you know, what is actually going to motivate uh, the intended use by the people in the organization or the customers we have or, you know, the board. And I think if we think about it in more of those terms, I think we could potentially be a lot more successful in the long term. Yeah, I, I've, I've used this analogy before because I, I, I came to the nuclear power side of the world. I, I work seven and a half years in nuclear power, and it wasn't a security issue. It was a safety issue, right? And I think this correlation of security and safety is one of these underlying principles. I don't think we do a good job some days in our industry to really equate we're there to provide a level of safety for our products, to for our data, for our consumers, et cetera. And, and we kind of get caught up in the words around security and cybersecurity. And we use a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt sometimes. But at the end of the day, it goes back to like this just basic foundational elements of providing a level of safety. And that's what I loved about the article. It's one of the reasons I love this industry, right? I love it from the the value purpose perspective of what we do and what we're trying to do is to help us provide better security or safety for the things that we do in our day-to-day -day jobs. And, and that's why I, you know, I, I took so much to this article and yes, it's a little long, Ben, I'm sorry, but I, I thought it was a good reflection back on what it is we're actually here to do. And I, I thought that was a, a really good foundational article. I think that's yeah, one no, of the other points that, as, as an attacker, right, like that is one of the key things that will stand out when you start to deal with people that uh, operate on the offensive side and companies that do really good offensive security and provide value to, to organizations. Those are the ones that really do connect the dots to the human. They make it personable. They tie to the board and not just the business risk, which even, even some companies don't even get to the extent where they're linking the business risks to the technical pieces, taking that a step per further and tying that to the personal aspects of this. Uh, those are those are the ones that are, are doing a good job. They're providing the impact statements. They're providing the big levers to pull and the why behind it. If, if we as humans don't have that why, the psychology doesn't link those neurons together and we're not able to make those leaps between business technology and the people of, and reason why we're actually doing what we do. Right. Ben, did you have another comment in there? No, no, I, okay. I, I agree. I mean, yeah, you know, yep. So this next article, I brought it in for one main reason. It, it talks about how cybersecurity changed through the pandemic. And I think most of the things in this article we know, right? 
we went from trusted to untrusted and borderless and all this other stuff. But there was a section on the BISO in here. And the reason I pulled this in is, is to tie to the first segment. Uh, and it's interesting how he talks about the evolution of the BISO role, which we just kind of debated in the last segment, uh, as one upside to consider. And I think he's thinking about the BISO in a much larger organization, uh, similar to the the conversation we were having Ben last segment is that in the really large like enterprises like financial having you know four BISOs across the business lines working closely with the CISO makes a lot of sense. That isn't necessarily the case for all organizations, though. Yeah, I think that that's yeah that's correct. I think one of the yeah. things that I I seen in this one though. It, it does say that the pandemic did bring a lot of ability to attract different talent, right? And that is a, a huge uptick. We've seen, you know, remote talent. We've seen a lot of companies that were anti-remote. They didn't have the capabilities. We've seen the ability to fully work remote, which has been great for work-life balance in some cases. Uh, maybe not in all cases, but the thing that I think people are missing, though, is a lot of these companies were forced into this remote work, this remote talent. And so not everybody has that figured out. And I think there is some evolution that is going to continue to happen. And companies are going to have to realize they have to evolve. Uh, there is ways to do this better. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned that I think some of these companies are just starting to hit the precipice. So the CISO role, the BISO role, those are going to be critical for how the culture adapts, how the company starts to mature and what that remote work looks like in a very healthy and positive manner. Because again, a lot of these companies were forced into this and that doesn't mean they're doing it well. So I think they're going to have to continue to get a pulse on the organization, really understand their people and make sure that this is the, the right move and they're doing it in a way that, that actually is meaningful and works for this talent that they are attracting. Yeah. Well, I, I, we, again, we'll hit that in. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's essential for the for the BISO role, right? As the we emerge and we have more of these roles available, I think you know thinking about how we engage with this remote workforce and how we make sure that we're meeting the demands of you know th this this changing environment. I, I think it's really important to have somebody who can kind of capture that and, and act as that interface, both inbound and outbound. Yeah, we have an article at the very end, a little bit on this topic. I should have put it right here in, in the order, but I, I didn't know we would go down this path uh, at this part of the conversation. But we, we will talk about this a little bit uh, in the last story around hybrid work and some of the, the tools and the maturity and the technology, to your point, Tyler, that's going to have to evolve to continue to support um, this remote and hybrid work environment. So we'll get there. The next article I put in here was really around how facility managers should work with IT and potentially security to secure networks. I think one of the big challenges, having come out of the nuclear world, right? I know how those plants were run. They weren't run by IT folks. They were run by plant managers. And when we think about <laughs> manufacturing, right? We think about these different manufacturing environments. You know, these these are uh, areas that we have to deal with, and but they're not necessarily IT or security people. This is a really interesting challenge. Just the last part. What was that? <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, must have been my network. Sorry, guys. Uh, I said they're not traditionally uh, IT or security people. So how do they help protect these plant environments from, from attacks, right? And I thought this article did some interesting call-outs of areas that the plant managers should really start to think about. Well, that's always been the problem, Matt, right? With IT um, and OT and security, the intersection of them, right? I mean, the OT environment's just, it's run by facilities and, and plant operations people, whether you're manufacturing and, you know, putting out Doritos chips or whether you're, you know, managing a data center and you're on the, you know, the facility side of the house, there's an intersection of that, that IT OT environment, and it, it's just always been challenging because it's been managed in a different way. And so I, I we str I struggled with that when I was back at Visa. Um, you know, we had issues with that when I was at Nokia, um, and it, it just continued to be an issue. And I think you're seeing a lot of that intersection kind of 
breaking down and, and people assuming now that they they have to they have to address that. Yeah, I think you've seen the emergence of, of several companies that have kind of uh, in the cybersecurity side that have kind of come up to address that that intersection. And, and yeah. not even just <clears throat> not even just the the OT side. Well, the OT side, but ICS in particular, those are are you know we've got a much broader awareness of cybersecurity attacks, kinetics that, that can happen from that. But you even start to look at some of these safety, like uh, fire protection systems. Uh, I was on a advisory board to help uh, address the fact that uh, they haven't looked at security side at all in any of the requirements. And it's one of the only bodies that pushes requirements for building and safety. But safety has always been the main concern. However, yeah. technology has started to ramp up with that, and you have all these connected systems. Now you've got IT yelling at OT, and, and they still have to operate and still have safety. So all of those things, like you said, are coming to this massive head of convergence, and we're really having to try and find the talent within inside of OT and address those people uh, that are very specific and, and have that institutional knowledge. We're bringing them up into a world that they're not familiar with in IT. They've, they've kept that very separate. They uh, may understand a lot of, of the things with inside the building and, and very technical ap- deep aspects, but they have no understanding of how that ties into the business, how IT functions, well, what the DevOps process looks like, what um, asset management and integration, AV, EDR, all the things that we've been doing correctly and, and maturing over the last 20 years in the IT space. Uh, we've got to do a better job to bring the OT space into that, not just the, the technology, but the people as well. And get that up to speed in a much shorter time frame because we're already seeing um, this coming to a head and, and having real damaging effects to companies and or the availability of things. We start to think about all the security we put in. If we can shut down the power in a building or overheat a server room, you know, with a 1997 zero day, then you know that's kind of a bad thing to have from a from a business standpoint and a CISO standpoint. So it sounds like the plant managers are perfect candidates to be in the BISO role, because if you think about it, right, they have the operational experience around these plants, but don't necessarily have the cybersecurity expertise. Sounds like a pretty perfect match for a BISO. Just saying. It could work. work. Those OT guys sometimes are are maybe not people, people persons, so they they have to be the right (laughs) person. (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Next article, time to bring the cybersecurity technical debt under control. Uh, Yes. But there was one stat in here that I thought was the way it was stated in the article. After two decades of playing that game of buying technology, blah, blah, blah. Some cybersecurity practices are now operating up to 20 or 30 different tools. That seems low to me. I thought it was more like 50 to 70 tools. Yeah, I, I think that number does sound low for large organizations, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, maybe maybe a lot of those have been acquired and or rolled in. Like we, we've got the single pane of glass now, and, and now we have XDR. So, you know, all these disparate technologies are coming under one umbrella. <laughs> Kinda. So, Ben, when you, when you think about your strategy, right, at the CISO level, you know, how do you start to deal with all these potential tools that are out there? You know, what's the optimal number for you? Like, how do you get, is it 20 to 30 or is it more than that? Like, how do you whittle down some of this cybersecurity technical debt that's been building up for years before you potentially even walk into an organization? Yeah, look, I don't think there's a number, right? I don't think I go in and say, well, I've got to have 30 tools or I've got to have, you know, 45 tools. Like it, it's not a number. What what I'm looking for primarily is where's the risk sit in the organization? How do I f- figure out how to implement a set of controls that address that risk appropriately? And wh- if that's 20 tools and that's the right number, that's great. If it's if it's 60, then, then that's the right number and that's great. Um, ultimately, like we're... Everyone struggles with budget and how we address budget in the organization because there's always this push to to lower it. Um, even if you've got a decent spend, like y- you always feel like you're being a better corporate citizen and you're you're uh, participating more at the executive level if you can come back with with some type of cost savings or more cost efficiency. So I, I think that's always a pressure. But at the end of the day, what I, what I'm looking for in tools is, and I think this article talked about it a little bit, is 
tools that integrate and work with each other in an efficient manner. I, I really need that integration and efficient workflow of data so I can I can make decisions based upon risk. Um, I, I need things to work in a, in a holistic way. And that's why I think architecture is really important. It's really great to put a new tool in that does something. But if then I'm forced with a more manual process or more work, that can make it much more difficult. So I, I'm looking for how to automate, how to use a, a common set of tools that work together well. Um, and then you know when you come into an org, you may find that there's three different tools doing the same thing. So I'm I'm looking to eliminate that and get down to a a standard set of tools or a a reference architecture around that I'm building. So I've got you know one tool for you know potentially for EDR. I've got one tool for VM, um, and I may use something for a backup, but I, I certainly don't want to rely on that as you know the the everyday tool for VM. I, I have three different vendors I'm going to that that just doesn't work. Yeah, that, that cross that cross domain is is really critical, and I think this is still one of the big. Uh, return on investments you get from your money when you do, uh, say, offensive assessments or pen tests or purple team or architecture reviews, all of those things are really taking in and making those tools work and have to flex. And you see the interoperability or lack thereof between departments and their ability for teams to utilize those uh, during an exercise and, you know, you're, you're emulating a potential real world exercise. So how does this work? Is it efficient? Can teams uh, operate between each other? Is there communication? Is there gaps? Uh, so you're really getting that gap analysis and the functional uh, ability of whether or not the tool performs as it should and whether those tools actually work together as they should. Yeah, definitely a fun little challenge for most organizations. Uh, this next article is Washington University in St. Louis is a, launching a new executive cybersecurity leadership program. We've talked about these programs before on the show, and I'm just curious, do these help us or don't they? I, I mean, are they necessary or are they, are, are they just a way to, I don't know, I've had people ask me about the Carnegie Mellon program, you know, people from the outside are like, well, should I go to the, you know, the Carnegie Mellon program and get certified? That's not necessarily going to get you what you think you're going to get. So I'm, I, I'm kind of mixed on some of these programs. Yeah, this is, uh, oh, I don't know. I, I've, I've asked myself the same question, right? Is it, is it worth it to, to go do something? Is it worth it earlier in my career? Is it worth it to get a certification in them? You know, I, I I guess it 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 can it can be beneficial in some cases, but I think you know if I read the article, you know, this this executive cybersecurity leadership program is targeting senior level of executives in cybersecurity. Well, if you're already a senior level executive in cybersecurity, I'd, I'd wager that you probably have the functional skill set, or I, I would hope so, um, that this program is going to provide. So I, I look at training or certifications more to, I mean, up level or, or get you new skills. If it's just attesting to the skills you have, I, I don't know how much value there is to that. It just, um, I don't know. I, I question it. And, you know, this happened back with the CISSP, right? I mean, wh when I was a, a sales engineer, how many salespeople were going and getting the CISSP? Did that mean that they knew really anything about security? It, it didn't. I mean, it means they meant they were able to pass the test, right? But I think the foundational experience of actually understanding how to implement it and why is really the more interesting aspect when I'm looking to hire somebody versus whether they have a specific certification. Yeah, I also see some of these programs just like, you know, the master's degree in, in cybersecurity or, or whatever it is, you know, the offensive cybersecurity all of these programs kind of give the next generation, uh, well, maybe good, there's a lot of lessons, there's some very technical piece, the technical aspects to it that can provide value to them. It gives them the expectation that they can go get this program or get this degree and, and hop right up into, you know, say a, a junior role, a, a senior role, or even an executive role. The executives and, and the people doing a good job and the people that should be in those roles are people that have the experience that have come up the ranks, that have the battle-hardened knowledge, while we do need to shortcut that and make that time frame less because we are short on those people, uh, there is no real shortcut for some of the experience that you need uh, to get there. So you do have to kind of pay your dues 
and not setting them up for those expectations of, hey, I can come out of here and I can make you know, $150,000 a year and be a, a senior level executive managing cybersecurity. That's not a great uh, expectation to put from, from a graduate uh, student to, to kind of figure that out. And uh, we're really setting them up for failure if we're, we're letting them jump into those roles without understanding the business, understanding the, the industry and, and learning some of those uh, lessons the hard way. Yeah, I mean, you this know, is a six-month certification program. Like, does it give you enough time to really, like, <laughs> get, you know, pay your dues or, or, or run your course? Six months seems pretty fast for, for some what, of these. What, what's the ROI on it, too, right? Like, I hmm? like I, I saw someone, um, and I, I can't I remember if it was Elon Musk, or it, it sounds like it was him when I'm thinking about it, but he was basically... Um, a, a, or, or maybe it was uh, Gary Vaynerchuk was was saying like you know if you're thinking about going to college or getting a degree or, or participating in a certification program, you have to consider the ROI. And re- relative to that, like I think there was a time when like you know you had to have a college degree to be able to move into a professional career, right? It was just considered a uh, cost barrier of entry. But I think a lot of people in the cyber field like who don't have degrees and are fairly successful in what they're doing because degrees didn't exist for cyber, right? And if I'm edu- coaching someone now, like I, I just think everything's gotten so expensive and going into debt, coming out of you know coming out of college with massive debt, trying to figure a way to pay that back, entering into a competitive space. I mean, I, I'm much more cons- concerned with the ability to do work and be part of the team and, and offer value than I am whether you have a degree, a certificate, or, you know, you went to, you know, some, some, uh, you know, post-degree program to, to get some certificate that says you can do something. It, it, can you actually do it? Can you do the work? Right. And, and if people have asked me about the Carnegie Mellon program, like, should I make the investment to do it? And I said, I, what's the return on investment? You spend 20 grand or 30 grand or whatever it is to get the certification. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a job in the in what you think you're going to do and i i don't see this certification program being any different i don't see the cost of it as a six-month program but it can't be cheap and so does it really give you what you need to get into the space if you're outside or or to move your career up to justify whatever you're going to spend to get the certification that that to me that's the unknown and whether these programs are worthwhile or not i think some of these programs the value that they do add is if you already are building that resume, you're already working towards it. You you know how to learn. You're pushing yourself, and you're that that self committed. Uh, these are value adds to your skill set for maybe a lower entry position that you're going for. If you're you're going for you know a help desk position or or even uh, maybe a junior analyst or SOC role, and you've got some kind of executive cybersecurity leadership uh, certification, great. Now you you know how to speak the executive language. You know how to communicate. You know what's uh, some of the the lingo and the ways in which executives are looking to move. Like that's a great value add on to you. But you're realizing what that cost is and long term what that that debt is. Uh, those are things you have to consider. Yeah, for sure. Uh, next article, 10 Effective Ways to Lead a Strengths-Based Team. And I brought this article in. I, I like Science of People. Uh, we, we've had uh, Vanessa Van Edwards on. Paul and I interviewed her. Gosh, it's probably been a couple of years ago now. But she always brings out these really good communication articles. And when you think about a cybersecurity team, a lot of your cybersecurity team are strength-based teams, uh, which means they all have their strength across a very diverse set of capabilities. And this talks about different leadership aspects of how do you continue to motivate that team across all their strengths. Uh, uh, so I, I like to bring these in because I think they're really great ways for you know leaders, especially CISOs, to look at how do you manage your teams in, in a pretty diverse area and how do you maximize uh, that staff that you have? Yeah, this was this was interesting because I, I read it and I thought that I I kind of feel like I've been doing a lot of this without realizing it was called strengths based <laughs> management. Um, but but I I compare it and contrast and it may not be popular, but this you know the concept that we've had for a little while now of like everybody gets a trophy, right? Everybody's everybody can do everything, and I don't think functionally that really works. I, I think it's really important to look at individual contributors in the team and realize. They've all got a different set of strengths and talents they bring to the table. And, and 
from a, you know, from an operational side, like knowing that and knowing how to capitalize on that and then hiring to where you have deficiencies. So if you're missing something on the team, you need to hire to fill that gap to give you well-roundedness. I think that's super important. And I think that's important from a coaching and mentoring side too, to say, look, I, I hear you, you want to do X, but you're really foundationally capable at Y. And if you do that, like your long-term success will be, you know, magnitudes better than if you focus where you thought you wanted to go. And that self-awareness, um, it's hard. It's hard for it's hard for me I, uh, to figure out where I I'm good things that I'm good at where I didn't think I was, and things that I'm not great at that I I potentially thought I was better at. Um, and so you can learn to you know minimize those weaknesses and maximize the strengths. You can focus on trying to build up areas where you have gaps. But but I think just understanding that foundational differentiation between strengths and weaknesses is really really important um, for your own career goals and for your teams. Yes, as as well as as well as uh, identifying and, and knowing your team members and the fact that everybody's kind of in a unique spot within their life. They may not be good at something currently because they've got things going on outside of it. Maybe you know it. Maybe you don't. So always realizing that there is more potential in people, you know, identifying those strengths, keeping them under wraps, but also giving that grace to, uh, to individual team members and not letting, uh, not discounting their abilities later. Um, and I've, I've done this personally many times, like, you know, I didn't realize they're going through something and you pass them up. You don't think about a particular role or strength that they may uh, come into later once they get through something in their personal life or, or you know, it's a different point in their, their career where they've matured past something. Uh, really realizing that you've you got to continually keep that touch point, keep those relationships and that dialogue and communication open with each of your team members uh, in case those goals change, in case their strengths change, in case uh, things happen in their lives where uh, the situation changes and they become a better resource or, or utility to you in the future that you may not have realized if you're not you know, keeping a tab on that. Don't discount them right away. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Tyler. Um, you know, you can have strengths, but if you don't have the desire, like you probably won't be successful either, right? So right. you, you kind of have to match those up. And as people's desires and strengths change over time, um, you know, the person you were when you were 20 isn't the person you are when you're 40 necessarily. So I, I think learning to recognize that and let people functionally change. I think uh, one of the things that it's great from a CISO perspective is let people move around in the org. Like, don't functionally pigeonhole people into, well, this guy's a great operations guy, so I'm just going to keep him in operations forever. You, he may just not have had exposure to GRC, and he may excel in that. Or she may excel in, um, you know, vulnerability management and have never done it before. But once they get exposure to it, they may realize their desire changes, too. So I think that's a that's a great point you bring up. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great way to keep very talented and... Uh, High-performing people, you'll always notice. Uh, they'll often be said that they're, you know, they jump ship a lot, they move, they they don't stay in one place. If you offer that and you want to retain talent, you keep those pathways open and you provide that novelty with inside of the company, so that they can go explore, so they can have that that new sense of adventure, that new challenge. Uh, that will retain talent a hundredfold. Uh, over any of the the little benefits that you think you know make a great program, the you know the workouts, the the flexible time, like all of those things are great. The novelty and challenge for high performing, especially high talented and high demand people, uh, always keeping that that open path for them across the organization and not pigeonholing. That's a, a huge benefit and a win, especially from like you said the CISO role. If you can identify that and allow that to happen. Uh, well, it may be more difficult for you, you'll retain that talent and they may often come back. Yeah, because if you're not giving them the ability to explore their purpose and, and keep them engaged, they will go find another job for more money and better benefits somewhere else. It's just a fact, right? And so to your point, Tyler, like give them the opportunity to grow and try different things and stay engaged because it's going to be really expensive to replace that talent later. 
Yeah. That's so true. This last, yeah, this last article is in a hybrid world. Your technology defines the employee experience. kind of ties back to a conversation we had at the beginning of the segment or towards the beginning of the segment. You know about this new remote workforce environment and and what it's going to take from a communications collaboration perspective to make it work. Because as Tyler said earlier, not every organization, you know, went there freely, and they're still trying to figure it out and. How you enable technology to keep these teams engaged in these remote or hybrid work environments is going to be a key part of, of, again, how do you retain and keep talent in the organization? Otherwise, you're going to get frustrated and leave, and now you got to go through a whole new recruiting process. Yeah, that, that autonomy, like we, we've, we've seen a lot of this where companies are not used to that, like providing that autonomy, not having that micromanaging. Those are really important things for high performers. You're going to get a lot of uh, productivity out of them. You're probably noticing your, your, um, your work going through the roof. People get things done. That doesn't necessarily equal happiness. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a great uh, thing for the team. You start to lose some of the team dynamics. You start to lose some of that sense of um, co-ownership, the collaboration between peers, the learning, all of those things feed into these high performers. While you may see an uptick in productivity and work, um, again, many of these companies have not figured out how to address the team dynamic or address some of the uh, loneliness or segregation or pigeonholing that happens uh, by default, because we all are really good at getting heads down. We're very good at getting work done. The high performers will always get the work done. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're feeling fulfilled at work. And so trying to address some of those and let the technologies um, not make more work for your team and have, you know, random apps to to check in on you and, and be this uh, automated system, but really figuring out how to get the team dynamics back and get the communication and relationships uh, to maintain while being remote without causing you know, this unnecessary meetings and un- unnecessary things too. Yeah, I, I, I'm concerned a little bit that I think sometimes companies think too much about the tech, right? And we've done that in security. We don't think about the people component. We don't think about the friction. Um, I, I, I struggle to think that a lot of companies think that just we'll throw more tech at it and it'll solve these problems. Um, and I, I don't know that that's necessarily true in all cases. I mean, I, I think there is part of that. There was there was the article you know taught saying how they um, people were going to get more engaged in a virtual environment and whether Hololens and we talked about that last I think last week um, but but also I think you know just the engagement of people like in the office and uh, if you're in the office you get access to people and you can have those discussions if you're remote you're not having those discussions so is there some type of preference or uh, preferential treatment that that people are getting because they're physically face to face. I I just I think we need to think about this hybrid way of working and remote work is is here to stay. H- how do we handle that as the new norm moving forward? How do we treat people with equity um you know because they're remote because they're not in the office. Um I, I, there was another article I read I think this last week about um a, a large company where they were uh, lowering people's salaries in specific markets because cost of living was less. I, I just don't know if that makes sense. I think, you know, pay people for the job they're they're doing, um, no matter where they are, right, at an equitable rate. Um, I, I just think companies are really struggling how to how to take in the new norm that is hybrid work. It's it's not as easy as deploy Zoom and everything is the same as it was in the office. And I, I think there's a lot of reaction from employees right now on that about you know, their their experiences are not all tech challenges. It's just, you know, companies being responsible and, and thinking about them in a human way. Yep. And and also addressing that each person is different, like one check-in system and yeah. one app, you know, where, where you've got the communication, uh, maybe that works well and that helps some people feel more connected without having to, you know, be on camera or it's just enough check-in. Whereas, you know, other people, I'll say like myself, I don't want unnecessary meetings. I don't need unnecessary video. However, I do want to be part of a team and help out and let's connect. But like, let's do that on a phone call. You, you're thinking about me. You want to check and see how I'm doing? Call me. I don't need an app to, to figure out if I'm doing okay. And then you can check the app to see if you need to check in. Like, I think we, we do have to have that uh, understanding that multiple people are different, the way in which they do things and connect with people are different, uh, but also really trying to eliminate 
unnecessary and unneeded work. If we're able to be more productive and get more done, uh, and that's just fine and we're, we're happy with what we're doing, then allow that for, for those individuals where you see the, the disconnect. Make sure that you're making the connection and allowing uh, different people to connect in different ways. So I think conferences and getting back in, in, in person uh, will go a long ways, you know, starting to look at how we can uh, do hybrid work environments or come into the office once in a while. Uh, these companies really do have to start to have a, a thought process, a design, and start to think about what we're going to look like in the next year or two, because that's when things are going to start to uh, take a shape and a form where you're going to see companies really stand out, the ones that have thought about it, implemented good plans, had some of that flexibility, and they really know their people, uh, as opposed to just, hey, we're going hybrid, here's three days, mandatory days, you need to be in here with the team, uh, and just shutting all that down. I think really having a plan thinking through it, communicating with your teams and, and really understanding what the business needs as well as the, what the people needs uh, outside of all the technology is where, where we're going to see some some big changes for big companies. Yeah, yeah it, it's some- it really, it's a seismic shift and I don't know how many people have really come to grips with the fact that it is, it's seismic. It's not, it's not a, just a, you know, people went home for two years and they're coming back in the office. There is a complete difference in so many different factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading a really interesting article this weekend between basically the the physicals and the virtuals. And if you think about our society, we're, we're being split into these two kind of factions where you have the virtuals or people who are working remote in a data um, kind of economy. And then you have the physicals, which are the people that still have to go into work and drive trucks and all this other stuff. It, it's an interesting dynamic that that companies really have to think about. How do you bridge the gap between the physicals and the virtuals? You can't be all one or the other because I don't think it works. And so, to Tyler, to your point, organizations that strategically think about this and figure out how to bridge the gap between the physicals and the virtuals are going to be the companies in the next couple of years that continue to excel where others will struggle because they're trying to shove physicals into virtuals or virtuals into physicals. And either way you do that, I don't think you win. Interesting yeah, times. Yeah, I agree with that, Matt. Times. Yes. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you everyone for watching and listening. And we'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly.